I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, editor of CapEx and host of Free Exchange. For our final podcast of the year, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than our usual format, I'll be looking back on 2018 with a group of CapEx contributors. Who had a bad year? Who had a good year? What were the big ideas behind the year's news? We'll be asking these questions and more by handing out our end-of-year awards. Some of them, I should point out, are less serious than others. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to Free Exchange. Um, I'm here with um, John Ashmore, Deputy Editor of CapEx, Alan Lockie from Demos, and Madeline Grant of the IEA. Um, all CapEx contributors. Uh, I'm, of course, Oliver Wiseman, editor of CapEx. Uh, and we're here to uh, do an end-of-year podcast special in which we, um, we, are, we, we hand out awards, some um, more coveted than others, to um, the biggest winners and losers uh, in what has been a fairly busy political year. Um, so let's go straight into the first category, which is biggest winner. And we're going to start with Madeline. Uh, Madeline, who's your nomination? I think this is going to be very unpopular, but I've actually gone for the Prime Minister. Um, Now, I I should clarify by saying that I I vehemently disagree with the direction the PM is taking things at the moment. Um, But I do think that she has to be given some, albeit grudging, credit for having managed to hold on to her position in the face of almost unanimous opposition. Um, Now, I think biggest winner does not have to necessarily be someone that we support or think is good. That's not how I've chosen to interpret these questions. But the fact that, you know, as I say, unanimous opposition, everyone's predictions, um, and I think the fact that in the face of all of this, she is still here, does justify the title of biggest winner, however grudgingly. Okay, the Prime Minister, starting big. Um, Let's, what we'll do is we'll lay out our cases for people and then then we'll go into... We can duke it out afterwards. So, um, Alan, what have you picked? Well, I I mean, I very, very... saying it's not necessarily popular, but I very, very nearly plumped for the Prime Minister as well because I think by all... uh, If if this was a fair fair, fair era of politics, she would be the biggest winner now and she would be standing uh, in front of Parliament who had signed off a deal, uh, which is quite clearly the only deal that emerges from the referendum result, in my opinion. Uh, as it is, she has been defeated by my biggest winner, which is an array of fantastical unicorns. Um, <laughs> some from the Labour Party, some from the Conservative Party. Uh, most of all are all predicated on a fantasy negotiation, renegotiation, which is not on the table, uh, and there is no time for it. Uh, and this is where the balance of parliamentary opinion seems to be. 
So rather than a, a kind of moment to genuinely bring the country together uh, along a compromise of, you know, the 52 and the 48 percent uh, in a way that is more appropriate for a direct democracy uh, election than a representative one, um, the Prime Minister has rather been defeated. She should be the biggest winner, but she's been defeated by just utter nonsense, as far as I can see, from Parliament. Okay, John, you're going to uh, take us overseas for your one and get outside the Westminster bubble. Who, who are you picking? Yeah, I toyed with a few different ones. Um, Jair Bolsonaro, obviously won one of the biggest elections of the year in Brazil, uh, not a country we cover all that often in, British, uh, in the British media. Um, but I've gone for my main man, uh, Vladimir Putin, who romped home with a, quite frankly, astonishing 77% of the popular vote. Um, his best ever performance in a, what I can only assume were free and fair elections in the Russian Federation. Um, if you look back at the year 2000, for instance, he got a mere 53% of the vote against a fake communist candidate. Uh, and last time, I think he only got 63. Um, but also, I mean, jokes aside, he does just continue to act with complete impunity and take the piss. I mean, anyone who watched the two, um, you know, sports medication salesmen on their, on their return from Salisbury can tell that, that that is a country that is basically just trolling the rest of the world and having a bit of fun doing it. And I think that's, the, that's more the Perrier Awards that they... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, we're all being too cynical. I think we've all been to, we've enjo- all enjoyed a good trip to a good cathedral. And Salisbury is a fantastic cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. The best thing about that is they didn't actually go to the cathedral. Um, no, I shouldn't make light of a, what is basically a, a terrorist attack. But yeah, I mean, he, he, continues, to, <laughs> he continues to win um, in everywhere, really. Like, he just... The Russians are still in Syria, basically dictating what Assad does. They're palling around with the Iranians. They're still in eastern Ukraine. Nothing's really happening there. Um, Russian oligarchs are still exporting Ukrainian coal on the black market, which is kind of part of that war that's not really discussed that much. So, yeah, I think, um, I think Putin will be quite pleased with his work in 2018. Um, okay, so I'm going to go um, international as well, and I'm going to say... Uh, mine's not a specific person but it's very broadly America's democratic socialists or let's just say the left left wing of the democratic party I know those two things aren't, aren't the same but um, uh, I think the midterms this year uh, were a they were, they were sort of a mixed bag and very complicated in lots of ways but it's clearly the case now that with a presidential election campaign sort of all too close um the left wing of the Democratic Party is feels like it's in the ascendancy, and it feels like, um, you know, I mean, a lot gets written about the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's one of these figureheads of this movement, but it just feels like the Democrats are going to pick a, um, not you know, not rather than try and win the center of American politics um, against Donald Trump, they're sort of going to veer off in their own direction. And I think that is bad news for America, obviously. Um, and I think that's going to, you know, in terms of what happened this year, that's going to really define politics globally in the next couple of years. I think the direction of the Democratic Party is quite important. So there are nominations. Um, anyone just grossly disagree with anyone else here? Okay, Ollie, I don't grossly disagree with yours. I don't yes. follow American politics as closely as I should. 
But from what I understood, even if people like Ocasio-Cortez have these huge followings, my understanding is that the Democrats who flipped seats, the majority were the moderate Democrats. Mm. So perhaps that's not an accurate reflection of people's voting habits. Maybe it's a more accurate reflection of the kind of the dominant narrative in the Twitter conversation. I would go along with that. I would also suggest, uh, with with one eyebrow raised, really, that if you do, if if you do manage to pull off uh, the fastest selling autobiography of all time at this stage in the cycle, uh, and you're not a democratic socialist, that is at least interesting. <laughs> and I think um, that if that candidate decided to stand she would absolutely trounce all of the candidates, including uh, any candidate from, the, from that wing of the Democratic Party. But don't you think it's interesting the way that the right uh, are completely obsessed with the Democratic Socialists? So even if they're, they, they may be disproportionately obsessed with them, you know, they, they t- and they often tend to go after them for crazy reasons. So they attack Ocasio-Cortez for wearing an expensive suit on her first day in Congress, yeah. which... That obviously is my primary objection. It's, to quite, the, it's quite a big day. I think we probably all wear our yeah. best suit for that day, but it's, it's really <laughs> incredibly... Yeah. Tri- do, but it's incredibly trivial, and they should be going after them on, you know, how does this, a bit like the CPS did, to give fellow think tanks some credit, you know, actually cost the opposition's policies. Right. That's that always a good start. it's a bit of a, like, meme in American politics, is that Democrats are actually champagne socialists, and they they were actually living the high life and, and talking down to ordinary Americans. Right. I mean, I'm sort of sensing that I'm not going to win every round of mine, but I'm not going to let John's claim that Vladimir Putin's had a good year go unchecked before we move on, because I think that, I think that as, uh, unlike in 2016 and maybe 2017, Russia, with Putin at the head, was this... Um, scary power secretly pulling the strings on uh, whether it's the Brexit referendum or the presidential election. Uh, this is the, the story we're told. I'm not saying I sign up to it. But, you know, this omnipotent uh, um, autocrat was pulling all the strings. I think what we've seen in 2018, apart from his handsome uh, presidential election win, uh, is we've seen a, a, an actually very fallible Russia, a Russia that makes lots of mistakes, looks amateurish and looks kind of, you know, doesn't doesn't actually compare very well to to, to 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 the rest of the world. So I think if anything, it's sort of been a sort of year of overreach for Putin and and embarrassment. He, I mean, he wouldn't have wanted he didn't want those those um, well those murderers to be on Russia Today, explaining they were on a tourist trip to Salisbury. Funny as that was. Um, so I just think he's had a bad. In fact, I think he's one of the biggest losers of the year, not one of the biggest winners. But um, I think there's an interesting way of looking at this, which maybe we should on, on, a, on a podcast called Free Exchange, which is to, to look at it as kind of investors and see who has had a, a, a better year-on-year return. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, Vladimir Putin's 2018 is, as Ollie said, not as good as his 2017. Brexit unicorns and Brexit kind of fantastical cakeism. <sighs> I don't know if it's changed that much. I think it has. I'm, I'm, I'm quite taken with the Brexit unicorns. All the, the purveyor, the sort of the riders of the unicorns have done pretty well, even if they didn't win yeah. the confidence vote. The fact that like Jacob Rees Mogg is now a household name to me is just utterly bizarre. Well, um, I, don't, I, well, I think Jacob's preference for the for for, for the the settlement and the future relationship is one of the non-unicorn options. Actually, I mean that is something that is very very real. Mm. Um, you mean in the sense that he he's more explicit about the trade-offs? Well, no, I think no deal is not a unicorn. I right. think. Yeah. Uh, I think. Um, right. Theresa yeah. May deal is, is not a unicorn and I think second referendum is unicornish but it is a thing that could 
in theory yeah. happen. So I might tweak some... your answer and say that the hard Brexit is effectively. Yeah. But I think because we're getting close to there. But you're talking about Labour. You're talking about Labour too on on, on Brexit. Yes, Labour absolutely. Uh, Anyone who is suggesting that there is a way to renegotiate the deal. So I mean, I think much though I have some sympathy for the EEA position. I think that includes the likes of Nick Bowles in this. But it's just not an option. My my only problem with your nomination, and I think you make lots of good points, but my only problem, sort of serious problem with it, is you don't actually. For it to be true that the Brexit unicorns has had a good year, you would have to say that the peddlers of these of these uh, yeah. theories were in a stronger position as a result of their their policy on Brexit. I don't think you can say that about the Labour Party or yeah. or Boris Johnson, for for example, or Nick Bowles. If we can talk about, but you know, what I mean, these these are, these are not things that are no, I agree, and are I catching catching on. I agree, and I was kind of moving on the sort of year by year analysis to to swinging behind Madeline really because. However, you, you, whatever you feel about Theresa May's 2018, it was certainly better than a 2017. <laughs> yeah, I think if we're measuring on a kind of relative rather than absolute scale, I think Theresa May absolutely takes this one. Yeah, I think you could, I mean, I guess the point about the Prime Minister would be the damage was all done in 2017. Yeah. And so from mm. then to now, ha- has she... She's done better than expected. Yeah. I'll definitely give her that. So we are. We find ourselves, I think, in the astonishing astonishing position of giving Capex's winner of the year to a prime to a a confidence vote to a prime minister who faces a uh, a complete doom in January and has scraped through a confidence vote among her um, MPs. But congratulations, Theresa May, you are our winner of the year. Gareth Southgate, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he definitely didn't win. It's the equivalent of being in the Grand National. Everyone else's horse kind of gets fully knocked over, and yeah. Theresa May's just about hobbles over the line, and thereby with the jockey it. being sort of yeah, dragged exactly. along. The line. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, so from winner to loser, uh, get the big ones out of the way first. So, um, why don't we start with John this time? John, who is your biggest loser? Well, actually. Uh, follows neatly on from our last bit. I just put the Conservative Party because they have, I mean, they're at each other's throats in a way. It's kind of predictable. I suppose you could imagine some sort of civil war. But they did a fairly okay job immediately after the referendum of being fairly civil. But now it's really hell's broken loose. And I think there are kind of potentially, maybe existential problems is overstating it, but there would be... If you went for no deal, there are already Tories saying they won't run as Tories. And if imagine there was a general election, I know there are going to be Eurosceptic MPs who are going to consider not running for a Conservative Party, running on a ticket that would be pro a deal that they hate. So I yeah. think real issues to them they haven't exactly you know killed the shot the Europe fox yet. And if they go with no deal, then they're, they're also going to lose people like Nick Bowles and Anna Subri. On the other Indeed. side, so yeah, yeah. 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 it's whack a mole for them. Yeah. Okay, so John says the divided Conservative Party. Madeline, who's your biggest loser? I've gone for um, Emmanuel Macron. I guess to, to get away from the the bubble. Um, well, of course, Macron again has suffered. I think from the opposite of what Theresa May had, which was incredibly high expectations, which have perhaps unreasonably high expectations, which have we've seen kind of crumble into ashes over the last twelve months. Um, there's been over a month of protests now, I think, from the, the Gilets Jaunes who are creating all sorts of problems for him. He's at historic low ratings in the polls. And it's not just the situation that he's in, I think, makes him the biggest loser of 2018, but also the 
incredibly incompetent and short-sighted way in which he's handled these problems. So, for example, when faced with a great deal of resentment from working-class people who feel marginalised and feel the you know, high living costs and so on, he does a very kind of Marie Antoinette-like speech in the Elysee Palace in a room that's kind of gold-plated as far as the eye can see. And it's not really... It seems that he's suffering both from misjudgment but also a complete lack of self-awareness, which I think probably looks set to create further problems down the line. Yeah. Okay, Alan, you have gone for a British politician. Who is it? <laughs> uh, well, I felt like I should have gone for Steve Baker just because he's slightly more comic comic uh, figure in my in my estimation. But I've I've gone for the for the obvious choice to represent the ERG really, which is Boris Johnson. And you know, start of twenty eighteen, Boris Johnson is Foreign Secretary. You know. He's in pole position, I would have thought, and I defer to the people in, around the table, but he's in pole position really as the, the, the Brexiteers candidate du jour if there is a leadership election. And he finds himself, you know, at the end of 2018, not necessarily being able to supplant David Davis. I mean, this is, this is quite the fall, fall from grace. Uh, but it's more than that, really, because, you know... He fundamentally has not been able to change any perceptions uh, that are uh, abroad about his character as a politician in about two or three years, really. He hasn't used the opportunity of government to suggest that he can be serious and statesmanlike. He hasn't used uh, the critique that he, uh, that he is divisive, which emerged out of the referendum, to kind of uh, you know, demonstrate. He hasn't used any... He hasn't been able to... to, to to move on from the perception that he would divide the country if he was Prime Minister. And he hasn't really been able to come up with a single practical idea uh, for the Brexit that he supposedly wants. You know, he tends to sort of, you know, provide an analysis from the pages of the Daily Telegraph. Very well remunerated, I'm sure. But the analysis is basically we just need to believe in ourselves a little bit more. And I think that is just so out of keeping... Uh, for what he as a, as a politician needs to do to, to, to change the country's perception of himself. So, you know, he's in no man's land, really, as we look at the end of the year. OK, so we've had the Conservative Party, Macron, jo- Boris Johnson. Uh, I'm going to go overseas again, um, for, and I'm plumping for uh, Xi Jinping, because I think... one The of most th- powerful man in the world. Yeah, but I... Bear with me. I think one of the um, stories of 2018... Um, this is... Xi is in here to represent the story is the, um, the 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 at least at least in the West the the slight shift in thinking in terms of China the rise of China being um, completely inevitable uh, and unstoppable force that um, needs to um, mean we could question all sorts of our own political assumptions and so on to uh, a phenomenon which is looking. Like it has lots of problems. Um, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, has kind of been a classic case of overreach. There's been huge problems with the the, um, the borrowing in that. The um, Chinese government is looking quite amateurish in the way it's dealing with lots of other governments. Um, and, and so I just think there's this kind of this idea, this unquestionable thing that is like China knows what they're doing. We are entering the Chinese century, and kind of that's what's going to happen. Uh, is, is looking less and less certain to me and looking more and more contested. I mean, that's not to mention, by the way, if, we were, if this was a sort of 
what we thought of them and their beliefs rather than how good a year they had. You know, it has been the year in which we've learned about basically concentration labor camps for the Uyghur, uh, scary social credit system. Uh, and, you know, this is a totalitarian government and it looks like it, it falls short in all the ways totalitarian governments always do in terms of um, not necessarily being sustainable in the long run, even if she is sort of doubling down on, on, on his approach. So um, I, I agree it sort of seems an unlikely one given how powerful a man uh, I'm talking about, but I just think that the sort of the, the shine has come off the idea of China as, this, um, the, as, as the future. So that is a fairly sombre note to... <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with those criticisms, but I don't know if there's really been a kind of enough crystal moments of him failing right rather than it's like more visible parts of a process so Macron I think has the most like oh my god look what's going on yeah yeah I mean I'd love to defend Emmanuel as a sort of centrist but he has had a phenomenally bad year and um, I don't know I have to take a slightly depressing tone on on China really I, I think if you look at some of the emergent technologies of the next phase of capitalism, such as artificial intelligence, there is a real sense that the illiberalism of China is giving them a, 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 an edge, actually, mm. in, in an economic arms race. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a, a sense of, of of confidence in the, you know, maybe China has taken a few missteps this year, and there are certainly some worrying signs for all of us, really, uh, about the direction that their economy is going. But there's no sense, the corollary to that is there's no sense of a confidence that the West enjoyed in the 80s where, you know, liberalism, free markets, free speech is is, is part of how we win against a, a geopolitical war. It, it, it still feels like we're very much on a sort of defensive crouch. And, um, yeah, I don't share your confidence. Okay. Well, give <laughs> it a few years, give it a few years. Um, Okay, maybe I'll, maybe maybe I'll, uh, I'll I'll concede defeat on on China, um, but Alan, I'm going to push back on Boris um, a bit because I think he could still be prime minister. He, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I think that he's the most popular in opinion polls. Of he's all the, the most. Tory he remains the most popular. And also the most hated and, as well. Though, yes, but kind of I, I, I think that the the idea that he's, you know, I think it's a tricky one because none of these nominees have sort of totally screwed things up for themselves irreparably. I would say, mm. um, but I do think. In terms of the position they find themselves in at the end of the year, I don't. For all the for all the drama, I don't know if Boris is actually, you know, who who liked Boris at the beginning of the year and now doesn't like him. I don't know if there are many people like that. For example, if you're thinking about a, a popularity contest, yeah, that's a true. lot more this of his colleagues, a... unfortunately, which yeah, is potentially yeah. it's kind of the same as the Tories actually, because the polls was... are about yeah. the same. But there was right. that absolutely ludicrous outburst in the last few weeks where people were talking about Boris as Aslan, you know, returning to Narnia to rid, uh, rid the Conservative Party of uh, Jardis slash um, Theresa May. You know, there is this ridiculous language being used about him still. It's almost kind of hero worshipping, um, which does suggest that there are still people who are really strongly putting all their hopes on Boris. I think there might be a fifth candidate we can all get behind, which is JC. Because he's had a bit of a shocker of a year. Like any other leader of the opposition would be miles ahead in the polls, and he's like struggling with basic parliamentary process, and then managing to get himself up, caught up in like ridiculous. Yeah, I wonder if he doesn't sort of fall into the same category as, of, as Boris so. in the sense that like it, it won't necessarily prove to matter that much, and he can just sort of wait it out and. Uh, 
leave your nominee, the, the Conservative yeah, Party. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, any, argument, that, that, any argument that applies to the Conservative Party Is anyone to winning? I mean, it's, like, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a year yeah. of stalemate really, yeah, yeah. in terms of winners and losers. I, I, can, I think John Ooh. makes a really strong point about Corbyn, because, again, I think if we're, if we're measuring things sort of relatively... He started the year with very high expectation, and so in that time we've seen endless opportunities for him to score points, and endless again talking about bin collections and allotments and stuff. Um, and there's also <laughs> well, we've had Labour Live, which I don't know how indicative that was of something bigger, but it did in itself kind of suggest that a bit of the sort of glass. This, this was the Labour Festival. Yes. that was uh, that yes. That was. I think it was in Tottenham as well. It was. Yeah. It was. I think. I think it was this summer. And if you think what happened last summer or summer 2017, when Jeremy Corbyn was headlining the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, um, you'd think that getting some left-wing young people to come to a festival in a kind of edgy bit of London, where there's some, you know, with with Jeremy Corbyn, that would have seemed like a no-brainer, but. I mean, they did book the magic numbers as headliner. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I think we haven't. We forgot slightly forgotten about Madeline's nominee, which is Macron, and I think I that's. Think we the all kind of agree. I think that's. I think, I think that's the strong. In my in my book, yeah, that he's had a terrible well, year. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, if you think about start to finish, the sort of saviour of liberalism to the to man. I mean, Jupiter. it's interesting it's because he may yet sort of this may he may yet pull through. I mean, it's yeah. it's yeah. early early days of a French presidency. It's hard to know, but. Um, but by, by no reasonable standard has he had anything other than a really bad year. I think he's almost been hoist by his own petard to an extent. Firstly, because people had incredibly high expectations and people from all sides of the political compass were reading what they wanted to see in Macron. So, for example, free marketeers were saying, oh, look, you know, economic liberalism is back on the agenda. People who don't like Brexit were saying, look, the populist wave is you know, also at an end. And... I think people didn't really look so much at Macron. They just turned him into a kind of figurehead for what they wanted. Mm. And now the same thing is happening, only it's, only it's being applied to the gilets jaunes themselves yeah. because free marketeers are now saying, oh, they want low taxes, they must be sound <laughs> like us. Um, yeah. And yeah. working-class people are saying, oh, look, they're rising up against... Uh, sorry, left-wing people are saying, oh, look, working-class people are rising up against neoliberalism. So exactly the same process is happening, only it's been reversed on Macron. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... Yeah. I'm. I'm fully behind that. Uh, any objections to Macron as the... Not at all. Mm. Alan looks like he's unclear. He's unsure. No, it's just difficult. It's difficult to... I mean, I think all, all these people, with the exception of G, have had a pretty, pretty bad year. Um, yeah. So it's, well, it's, it's a like split a majority, decision, majority but I'm afraid vote, that... Yeah. Yes, three to one. So we are yeah. going to say Emmanuel Macron is the biggest loser of 2018. So that brings us on to word of the year. In this category, we've actually got two people going for the same word. Um, so we can sort of both just get your, get your word and address on that. Uh, but let's start with John. John, what's your word of the year? Uh, my word of the year <laughs> is gamma. <laughs> Explain just... to CapEx, not every CapEx reader might will necessarily well, know what the word just, it means. It means a than... certain type of Puce-faced, angry, middle-aged white man. Um, I'd say it's me in about 20 years. <laughs> um, it's epitomised by a, sc- a screen grab of various people in the audience for question time, which I really encourage you to uh, look up. Um, yeah, I think it just it's just a word I see around a lot and it's completely entered the political lexicon in quite a short time and it's one of those words that people just immediately 
knew exactly what you meant. And I also I mean, find I think, it quite sorry. funny when like people get up on their high horse about it, be like, "This is racist." Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think the, the very the thing that's so the thing that's so very twenty eighteen about gammon is it gets invented as this like zeitgeisty political word, which is a bit silly, but yeah. whatever. And then we have to have this tedious row about whether it's whether it's racist or yeah, whether it's, it's like, and then it becomes this yeah. Yeah. completely more. <laughs> But it becomes this completely moronic, like culture yeah. war, in which you're like team gammon or you're, or yeah, you're yeah. not. Or whatever. I mean, it might not be. It might not be. It might be a bit of a stretch to say that it's it's racist to say that white men sometimes have rosy cheeks and look a bit pink faced. But it's a super super snobby word, and it tends to be used in an extremely snobby and unpleasant derogatory way to dismiss Brexiteers largely. Mm. So I think like it's entered the political compass, and it's. I don't think it's actually in terms of the word of the year. I actually wouldn't give it because I think in terms of the power of the word, it doesn't achieve its objectives because it p- pisses off far more people than it would ever win round. I think that is its objective. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the Steve, word, that's the Steve Bannon approach to politics, which is choose your enemies and yeah. don't worry about anything else. We're hitting yeah, but in, in terms of block. in terms of you know, we live in a fractured world. People are trying to gain support for Remain or Leave or you know, No Deal or Second Referendum. The word gammon is crystallising support, I would imagine, amongst the Brexiteers, which is not what the people using it would want to see. I just mm. put it there because I thought it was funny. Perfectly reasonable ground. It has cut through. I mean, I, you know, from my sins ago on weird sort of Sunderland football club message boards, these are not people who are interested in politics, but gammon has cut through and is used in, the, in those forums as well. It, it's not by you, I hope, Alan. Absolutely not, of course. I mean, I would never describe anyone if as you gammon. mix the colours of Sunderland Football Club you do get gammon anyway so um, moving swiftly on to well actually Alan why don't you why don't you start part one of the two part case for backstop as well, well I mean it's just tremendously po-faced now though isn't it to say backstop but it I mean it is if you are serious about politics and I do try sometimes undoubtedly the uh, the, the the word of the year in terms of just you know the import uh, of the policy debate but also it is the one word where I've genuinely I mean anyone who uses the word contingency plan or insurance policy yeah. generally that's just gone it's just every time every time we have a conversation out I feel people replacing those words with the word backstop it does seem to be sort of perlocating through kind of I think maybe the word the, should be fallback all along it should have been fallback because backstop is a position in baseball Rounders, rounders as well. Two, rounders rounders two. Come, on. come on. I never thought when I was playing rounders at school that the word rounders. backstop would come to dominate everything ever again. Yeah, exactly. It's extraordinary. Yeah, so um, Madeline, you were also, you've also planned for backstop. Well, yes, just because it has become the key st- sticky point in our negotiations. Everything leads back to the Irish border. Uh, it's been kind of weaponised by both sides. And it's also, it's something that I don't think many politicians or many policy wonks fully understand. It's, it's hugely complicated. It tends to confuse people. And, and that's partly why it's holding up negotiations so effectively, because both sides are kind of making bold claims about what they know of the black backstop. Yeah. Oh, it is extraordinary this that reminds me an of the insurance policy yeah. which nobody wants to see has managed to stymie yeah. the negotiations. I mean, this is, yeah, I, okay, so I put a different word as my word of the year, which was managed, as in managed no deal. Uh, but I am just going to swing behind backstop straight away because I do think uh, it's, a, if you want to look at Brexit as a story, the, the, 28, the big story in the 2018 chapter of that rip-roaring novel uh, is, <laughs> is, the, is, is Ireland becoming the thing through which everything flows. Because obviously, yeah. of course, it was the December agreement last year where 
that was the, the, you know the, the seeds were laid for seeds were planted for for, for, the, for what has been the sort of decisive issue. Um, and the question, so, I guess, the question is why any of us were surprised by that. I mean, it is the the the, the most intractable question in the history of British politics. Um, we really should have been a bit more cross it during the referendum. I think they should have started to explore alternative options. They've only just now started, very recently started talking to the customs experts and so on. They haven't sent, took them a very long time to send civil servants out to Switzerland to see how the border's functioning there. Um, the, all of this border stuff, they left until the very last minute. And we've yet to hear that the technology could not be up and running within f- the few years. I mean, it's obviously, it may not be there right now, but no one has said this could never be a workable solution whatsoever. And yet the Irish border is still holding up negotiations. I mean, I mean, that's not that I... voting for the deal rather than anything else, because, I mean, this is, yeah. that's the future of the well, future. Well, that's isn't... one of the paradoxes, of, sorry, Madeline, one of the paradoxes of this is if you're a anti-deal Brexiteer, yeah. you are presumably confident that there is a solution to this Irish border. Um, and so, you know, it should follow that you should be comparatively relaxed about the backstop because it'll be so blindingly obvious that yeah. there are alternative solutions. So, you know, what do you have to worry about? That, that said, I, and I sort of feel like I've repeated this ad nauseum on CapEx, but um, it's not, you know, the backstops, given that the backstop was designed to ensure peace and stability in Northern Ireland, it's not exactly got, a, you know, its track record so far is not exactly brilliant, is it? So, you know, is this becoming this sort of, crazy self-defeating insurance policy where it makes the thing it makes the thing it's yeah. supposed to insure against more likely and then weirdly make people sort of double down on it in this kind of nightmarish yes yes exactly but i think the, the, surely the key problem with the backstop as we currently have it enshrined in the withdrawal bill is the fact that it's the eu that has the unilateral right to veto it so we could be locked into it in perpetuity. Is that, isn't that the, the problem we're looking at here that we say we could get out of it at some point but where's the guarantee that would happen yeah, that ob- yeah, I mean, that is obviously the big... Yeah, I can't argue with, with the fact that that is the big problem with yeah. it. But um, it wouldn't be but, a backstop without right. that element. That's the yeah. and, so but I think the fact that here we are, good. you know, rowing about the backstop just sort of <laughs> yeah. proves that backstop is word of the year. It um, should be in the sense that also it just didn't exist before this year in any right, exactly. sense. So it's like a complete 2018 neologism. So. Okay, so we are officially crowning backstop Definitely. the word of the year 2018. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, so our next category is Idea of the Year. Uh, this is where we try and get, you know, Kind of very serious, policy policy minded, and uh, highbrow about things, um, or maybe not. We'll see. Um, okay, so let's kick off with Madeline. Okay, so the idea I've gone for is, um, I guess, much like my choice of Theresa May. It's not necessarily an idea that I agree with, um, but it was an idea that was announced in the Labour Party manifesto that would basically force companies of more than two hundred and fifty employees to essentially hand over ten percent of their equity to their workers. Um, now, this, this policy, to me, the reason I've chosen it is that I think it's a, a classic example of the kind of really important conversations that we're not having as a result of Brexit. You know, this is a lunatic Maoist idea, the kind that you'd get in a, in <laughs> a kind of... force it, like, it's expropri- Please get off the fence, ex- man, Expropriation, right? It's the kind of thing that happens in banana republics, and it's being proposed by a mainstream party that a large company can simply, you know take away 10% of the, the share, shares from their shareholders, which is their property, and just redistribute it amongst the workforce. This is super authoritarian, and no one has... I've barely read an article about it. This is why I picked it, because I think it's a, mm. this is a product of the Brexit black hole of policy that, that we've, we've seen spring up in the last two years. Should okay. we CapEx more? Loads. Yeah, we, we, we really went to town on John McDonald's share. <laughs> Glad plan. to hear it. Um, Alan, what's your idea of the year? Well, you know, I'm going to be... Po-faced and bat bat for the left here, Um, but there's been quite an unbelievable level of interest in the more enlightened uh, and thoughtful uh, factions within the sort of McDonnell Corbyn project around an idea which has been particularly popularised in in Preston Council called community wealth building. It's more a sort of place-based policy toolkit really, and um, I don't agree with all of it. I mean, just to run through it. A lot of it is kind of about trying to increase the amount of purchasing power through, through purchasing power and procurement, increase the amount of wealth that stays within a certain local area. So, and the usual criticisms of protectionism there. Um, but it is the first policy, really, that I, the first sort of philosophy really I've seen that I think is asking the right question uh, after Brexit, which is how do we generate endogenous uh, sort of growth uh, in some of the poorer communities. We, we, we went through 13 years with New Labour where uh, central state uh, expansion and redistribution was not enough to give towns like Preston and Grimsby a dignified role in a competitive global economy. Um, and actually one of my crit- criticisms of, of, of Corbynism is, to a certain extent, when you strip it all away, it's just Blairism on steroids. It's just the same top-down central state expansion and um, a redistribution with a little bit of extra nationalisation and uh, rail train kits to play with. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, it's asking the right questions. Uh, and I think there is... There's a, there's a seed of an idea there, which, I mean, I, I don't... I think it's slightly oversold, actually. I don't think it's as protectionist as people make out. But if you... It, are interested in things like infant industry, 
you know, sort of in with industry theory, which which suggests that most countries at the start of their development start off as a little bit of protectionist before they eventually, mm-hmm. at a, at, at, a, at, a, at a, you know, a beneficial moment, swing behind free trade. Um, is it really right that is it really you know is it really sensible that something like the single market, which is a huge trade liberalisation project, uh, applies in all areas uh, equally? And are there not politically sensitive and you know in a normal you know politically sensitive and poor areas of Europe, which perhaps could have a slightly different uh, policy framework? which would be beneficial for them in the short term before they get back on their feet. So I think there's, a, there's an interesting idea within there. And so you think that's, I mean, it's idea of the year in the sense that it's an, it's an answer to, I mean, not one, you know, I'm not saying I agree with or anything, but it's an answer to what you think is the big question, yes, which yes, is how, yes. you, how, you, how you create sustainable wealth creation in poor communities themselves, endogenous, rather than, you know, just handing out some... Some some money from 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 the central state or for the EU, which as as we have seen in in the Welsh valleys, fantastic appreciation for all the money they receive from the <laughs> EU uh, does not necessarily confer dignity on on an area. Okay, so from CWB to BDS, uh, John, your idea of the year? Uh, yeah, uh, BDS stands for Brexit Derangement Syndrome, and we've seen this. This doesn't apply uniquely to leavers or remainers. I think anyone who spends any time... It is a particularly um, prevalent phenomenon on Twitter, uh, which I spend probably too much time on, and have recently discovered the joys of the mute button. Um, I'll avoid naming too many names, but I think we all know who the people are who... Day in, day out, every single thing they tweet is about Brexit, but they're not news reporters reporting about it. Uh, but it's not just that. It's not just the obsession with Brexit. It's the the fact that everything to do with it is either triumph or disaster, and never the twain shall meet. Right. And I think we've got to this stage where... And another element of BDS um, is that people just take it, politicians' words on their side at complete face value as if... It's just fine. Like so, everything that emanates from the EU is taken by Remainers is just like sacrosanct, and and almost the likes of Donald Tusk and Jean Claude Juncker are, are, are treated as though they're kind of sages rather than transactional politicians. By the same token, on the kind of hard Brexity wing of things, there is we discussed the unicorns earlier. This just ludicrous idea that you can just shun the detail and just go with a bit more be all right. Peter be Pan all right. politics, you could call it. Yeah. If you just believe the a real, bit the, the, core like, of, the core of BDS, though, isn't it about the way in which... It's obsession. It's those guys it's outside also, Parliament now. But it's also it's, conspiracy theory stuff. I mean, you yeah, see on yeah. Twitter basically sensible sort of... People who, a few years ago, were incredibly boring people more than anything else. Going in for the most bonkers idea about some specific flight some Russian took from here to um, here. And the, the document BBC is, vicar, perfect example of BDS. Yeah, exactly. The, the, so, the, like, the, some random person who was an extra in a TV oh, yeah. programme goes on Newsnight and, to make the case for leave or something. She was and now the suddenly the BBC have got hired an actor to make the leave case. It's all a bit. Yeah. No one in their right mind would put her on it's all to make bit. the case for your side. Do we think BDS is a, is a, is a 2018 phenomenon? Or when were the, when were the I first think it's I think it's really so it has ramped up this year. It's yeah. all got a bit... And I think you know people were obviously partisan and sort of slightly 
deranged about Brexit last year, but the conspiracy—I think the conspiracy yeah. theories has really added an, an element this year. It's all gone a bit Adam Curtis, where it's a sort of, you know, this thing happened, <laughs> the and this thing happened, the BBC. then this thing yeah. happened, yeah. and you do not see yeah. the sun and the moon in the same sky together. <laughs> think about it. And yeah, crazy sort of flowcharts yeah. of all those. And somehow if, if we don't think in this kind of loony flowcharty way, then we're the ones who haven't been paying attention. Yeah. We the people who, you know, have been attempting to follow along the arguments. Sheeple. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we've got... And actually I would say that as anyone who's ever worked, I don't know if any of you guys have ever worked for a politician or anything. Thankfully I haven't. Thankfully not, but it's very, it's, I have, and it's very, you know, it's in the loop, it's very um, the thick of it style thing. And what you realise very quickly is that generally the most likely explanation is incompetence. But people who, I guess people who are a bit far removed think that the forces controlling their lives are all sinister and somehow linked. Uh, My idea of the year, I think, is techlash, which is the horrible um, new word. Uh, Sounds like something Elon Musk would do. It's like, yeah. Both of yours sounded really kinky. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a word I've chosen to, su- to sum up to, or to, st- to stand in for the kind of the backlash against big tech companies uh, and the way in which I think 2018 has been the year um, in which Facebook, m- most spectacularly, but in general, um, uh, big tech is something which not just, um, you know, not just columnists in newspapers and policy and so on, but the wider public are really starting to think a very different way about well about well in several ways firstly how they use technology and secondly you know the economic um, consequences of all of this and you know what role these tech giants play in um, society so and I'm I'm, by the way I'm not saying I'm I'm probably only sort of I'm not as sort of freaked out as the average person about lots of these things but I do just sort of sense that um you know, there has been a real change in mood. I mean, partly that's because you've had these, you know, terrible stories about the, the most recent being Facebook's um, Facebook's pursuit of its critics in the, in a sort of most kind of ghastly way imaginable uh, over the last few years. Um, but I really actually am talking about the, the broader social point of, you know, I just wonder whether we'll look back on the last few years as this sort of mad period where we just rushed in and just did everything we possibly could online and like ticked every box and spent loads of time on social media and I just feel like there's a sort of maturing of our attitude to all of these technologies um, any it just made me think actually back to an early category and I'm not trying to rerun the uh, other awards but that Mark Zuckerberg smoked, smoked is a exactly. candidate for losing yeah, yeah, the year. Or Sheryl Sandberg. He's had a terrible year. He's had, yeah. a, um, he's had a really bad year. Um, yeah. I think um, they, their share prices, I don't know what the figure is at the moment. It's certainly lower than it was. definitely a lot lower. <laughs> Speaking from your investor you know, paradigm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, uh, yeah. He's hiding Nick Clegg as well, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to have to kind of just host prerogative. I'm going to rule out community wealth building, I'm afraid, Alan, because it's... It's a deeply non-capex uh, idea, firstly. And secondly, I think it's, uh, you know, it's not, I feel like for idea of the year, it has to be something in the zeitgeist in a way. Uh, I mean, maybe it's in a particular zeitgeist. You're missing an opportunity to, commit, to, make, to commission at least 15 pieces against it next year. <laughs> <laughs> Give us time. Give us time and we will. Um, I... BDS is obviously very. I mean, does anyone else have any views here? I'm, I'm sort of just weighing so, in all of them. In terms of my John McDonald one, I, it's, I've chosen it not so much for the idea itself, but more of what it embodies. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, like, but if it's pure zeitgeist, I can probably be ruled out. But equally, I think what it speaks to is something really important where we're turning a blind eye. I want to I, contest the John McDonald one actually because yeah. I thought that was a classic 
example of something that a lot of people have forgotten how to do, which is opposition politics, where you flag something because that's how you get into the Guardian as a sort of think piece and everyone starts debating about it, which is ludicrous. And then at the same time, which he did, uh, yeah. ring up all the businesses and say, yeah, we'll have a consultation on this. It's going to be a lot of different, you know. So you kind of, you kind of go radical. And this is, this is exactly what you do at this time in the cycle. And, you know, Ed Miliband didn't really work out how to do it. But you start from here and then you move in uh, and bring people into a bit more practical as you get closer to an election. I do actually think the another way in which that um, proposal was quite clever and, and actually typical of John McDonald's John, John McDonald's strength as a politician is he's very good at understanding the um, vocabulary of of you know a world outside his own politics. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn is kind of just comfortable talking to kind of meetings of people who agree with him, and that's his mm. whole kind of yeah. world. McDonald's very good, and, and one of the really interesting things about the share plan is, and lots of other things he proposes, it's actually couched in this like oddly like Thatcherite language yes. of ownership and control and communities. Um, yeah, yeah, and so I think it is in that sense it's also very instructive in terms. I mean, if you are opposed to a, the idea of John McDonald as a chancellor, it's a good example of yeah. a sort of in, completely flawed and bonkers idea. Yeah, cleverly, cleverly and that's packaged. It. That's why I think it's a really important argument because the you know. This is what will happen if, if those of us who care about free markets are not robustly making these points. Because and someone who's not following the detail that closely will like the sound of it. It will sound, as you say, it will sound like something liberating, something that, um, you know, something democratising for workers and so on. It will sound a bit like a, you know, shares or um, Royal Mail shares or something, um, or like a cooperative or whatever, something mm. much less threatening. But what it actually is, is, you know, forcible acquisition of private property and, rec- well, and just lots more tax basically and, too. Tax. and also creating terrible incentives for business like there's, I think they've set up some other um, I think I think they've got they also suggest floated the idea of forcing all companies with more than 250 people to publicly name any employee who's earning more than like 100 grand or 150 grand or something so I think that those two things combined they'll be creating an awful lot of companies that have 249 employees you know I think we can file that plan under one of my favourite phrases of the year, which is plausible bullshit. <laughs> it just sums up so many different things in politics where like, you could hear it without having read much about it. Think, hmm, yeah. But that yeah. Is, that, that's, that, right. that's kind of my point, because yeah. you know, 18 months into yeah, but it speaks to your point completely. Plausible yeah. bullshit is what you're meant to be coming yeah. up with as an opposition <laughs> party. You're not meant to be running the country. The journey, yeah. the journey everyone to will have forgotten kind of the detailed stuff, but into a costed... Uh, and you know, practical plan, which which you then take to to, to, to stakeholders, civil society. I'm, I'm not whatever. I'm not willing to I'm not willing to back the share plan's idea of the year, though, not least because Madeline's nomination nominees have actually won all the other categories so far. So I feel like well, I think she can't be throwing her out. Yes, you're going. Maybe, um, maybe I can defend. The I'm gonna I'm gonna ride I'm riding for tech lab. I'm already think, oh, Come on. I think that that I really do BBS think that. Had, it's not an idea, is it? What? Tech class. Tech class. No, I think it's not it, an I idea. Think BDS, it is. BDS isn't really is. an idea it's, so much as a phenomenon. I think <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think I think tech class is very much an idea. It's it's we've been using social media quite unthinkingly for the last ten years or so, and it's only recently that people have actually. And I find it remarkable that it's taken us this, this long to put two and two together. That, that there's this amazing product that you get for free, and you didn't think that you were selling your data in order to acquire that product. You know, but people are starting to think about yeah. it more in those terms. Put it this way: if you, well, if, you, okay. if you if you said to someone, if you someone explained that point to someone about data and why is it free and and so on, 
if you set explain someone sort of eighteen months ago, that would be I think that would be the sort of a new a new argument for lots of people. Whereas now that's completely kind of appreciated by yes. the average sort of moderately engaged punter. Okay, and look, I'll, I'll spin for you, Ollie, as well. So look, <laughs> uh, the other three ideas. Let's be clear are absolutely parochial and if we're looking at things like the Gilets Jules and if we're looking at things like the Rohingya communities in the travails in, 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 Burma, in Myanmar um, you know social media has had a profound impact and that's we've learned a lot more about that this year about the sort of damaging impact it can have in, in, in countries where democracy is not as strong as it is here so so we've got to, so maybe I'll spin it's coming round <laughs> coming round to it I mean it'll win by default because both of you won it you're still you're just yeah. listening to BDS but I'm afraid John you're outvoted and although I did left. just say I think if, on, on reflection BDS is not so much as an idea sounds like a, as a phenomenon it's a description sounds like a disease yeah, of, I mean, yeah it's a disease well, it, it, it is a disease, disease. Yeah. it's not an idea it's the opposite can of an idea I think if there was a, can we can I say if there was an idea we would most like if, if, it, or if there was one of these things in, on this list we'd most like to be rid of in 2019 I'm pretty BDS. sure BDS is yeah. top of everyone's list because we have yeah. to we have to we spend a lot far too much time on Twitter and you have to deal with these people on a regular basis mute, some mute, of us mute. still follow your <laughs> Jonas <laughs> okay so but, but okay BDS has a strength but tech lash it is idea of the okay. year 2018 is tech lash okay um, okay on we march um, okay so the next category is shock of the year uh, a sort of truly eye you know eyeball popping moment for each of us um, over the last 12 months um, Alan why don't we start with you I think you should start with John, actually. Okay, John. Because I'm going to vigorously oppose his thing <laughs> because I actually predicted England to be in the semi-finals of the world. Oh, well, there, you've so taken you, the, you've shot, shot his thunder. Shot my fox there. <laughs> John, why was that Well, okay, I might change it to not just England being in the, England getting to the semi-finals. Kieran Trippier, Man City yeah. youth reject and former Burnley right back in team Play of the, the World Cup. Uh, and just, I think, more... Seriously, the whole country just going completely nuts in a good way for about a month. It was awesome. And the glorious summer of 2018. <laughs> you know, we all actually had fun and didn't hate each other for like three weeks. It was Never, And then we quit and then you know, yeah. business as usual quickly <laughs> You might have, Alan may have sage-like qualities of football prediction, but I don't think anyone else in the country thought we'd get to the semis. I, I think... Uh, before the tournament. It also, the tournament. I, think, I think part of the reason it was so, so, so enjoyable was because it was just such a surprise. I mean, it wasn't like one of those like... You know, there's expectation laden England tournaments where it's like anything other than thrashing a rubbish team five nil is seen as like an absolute nightmare. And you know, we were just sort of riding with it and seeing where it went. And I think we're so used to doing ourselves down. Yes, and it's and almost become a national pastime yeah. in itself. And yeah. I will, I will go as so far as to predict that England will win a major tournament in the next fourteen years. So you can fourteen. <laughs> okay, we'll mark yeah. that then. Yeah, if All not, right. if not more than one. Okay, um, and what's your what's your what's your own um, well my situation? my real World Cup shock because it has never happened whereas England have reached the semi-finals at least twice before and was predicted by some sage like uh, football, <laughs> amateur football pundits is, is the fact that Germany never have never been knocked out in the group stage it's never happened before and there was this wonderful I, I work in a shared office there was this wonderful wonderful moment where I was watching the South Korea game surreptitiously. And when South Korea scored with about 10 minutes to go, about 50% of the office just went, yes! <laughs> and jumped up 
it was a it was a remarkable moment to see to see and you know Sean Boy is a wonderful thing. Um, but yeah, it's more seriously. I think, and I was sort of maybe expecting it to win, but the scale, and one of the more positive thing political stories here, that the, the scale of the uh, victory for repeal of the eighth and uh, the extension of abortion rights to, to to women in Ireland, kind of shocked me how how, how big the, the margin of victory was, and you know you're used to reading about and learning about Ireland as this, this country that's completely suffused with Catholicism and it's, and it's brought you know, plenty of problems with that uh, over the centuries. So I think it was really quite a wonderful moment in Irish politics and it was, it was, quite sh- it was, it was a shock to me uh, that, that a country can transform itself overnight so quickly. Yeah. What was the margin, actually? Do you happen to know? I, I mean, I remember it was something extraordinary. Bigger than I expected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was about... It was over 10%, I think. Yeah. Which in a two-horse race I is know. quite big. And given the narrative that we, we are told about Ireland, you know, the fact that we, you watch a documentary like the, the Magdalene Sisters or something, and the last thing they tell you is this persisted until 1996 or whatever, mm-hmm. the implication being Ireland is still this incredibly backwards place where people have these regressive views towards women. And for, yeah, for it to be so decisive in that way was, yeah, I agree, a real shock. But Madeline, what was your what was your own um, your own nomination? Although you sound quite tempted by uh, Amazon, but well, I I'd, I'd completely forgotten that that happened. I think it's probably the the Brexit black hole again. Um, but yeah, I've gone for the extraordinary optics of Donald Trump shape, shaking hands with Kim, Kim Jong Un over the summer, because given the situation that we were in before that time, where North Korea had been busy firing rocket, rockets over Japan, and the language on Donald Trump's Twitter feed and the rhetoric elsewhere had becoming, you know, been becoming extreme, increasingly belligerent. For it to culminate in a handshake was something quite extraordinary. And, you know, I think obviously it remains to be seen if it was just a kind of spectacular optical thing or if it's something more meaningful. But either way, I think the, the, the extraordinary unprecedented moment that that represented is, uh, yeah, I think extremely significant okay well i'm going to kind of really only introduce this one slightly as a joke um uh, because i think madeline and alan have made both made persuasive cases for theirs but um <laughs> andy andy another <laughs> great uh, great round for john <laughs> but um but no um we're, we're, reco- we're recording this on the wednesday before christmas and um we are we are just you know the dust has barely settled on jeremy corbyn stupid woman gate um, and my big shock was seeing on Twitter that Hollywood actor Rob Lowe weighed in and said he was watching PMQs on Sky News and he saw Jeremy Corbyn um, uh, utter the word stupid woman. So uh, just the fact that Rob Lowe watches PMQs on Sky News is my kind of... I mean, is it shock of the year? It's certainly shock of the week. Um, I don't know who Rob Lowe is. Rob Lowe he's is, in, in is the speech, world. He's the, uh, he's the speech he's writer the in uh, The West Wing. Sam Seaborn is here, and he's just uh, well. I've, I've looked plenty. Of, he's a very famous. He's a very famous yeah, actor, isn't yeah. he? Not yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. I find yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy, another guy. Oh no, that's Colin. Another Colin. guy. Okay, so but I'm willing to sort of park that as just a fun, 
you know, we'll forget about that I by was Christmas Day. when I saw that. Today. But I was yeah. genuinely shocked. I'm always shocked when people... So I, there's a whole... I'm not one of them. I find it hard enough to keep up with Westminster politics. But there's a, a very large group of people in this country who are obsessed with American politics. And they step to watch midterms and they can tell you about the significance of, significance of each new seat or whatever. Um, and it, I can never imagine Americans doing the same thing to us. So I can never imagine people yeah. in New York Corby. staying up till four to be like the Coventry District Council has declared. You know, I did see actually yeah. quite. A, it was quite, quite funny. I think that um, CNN broadcast PMQs. I think it was the the day when the, the day of the confidence vote. So last week was that. Um, and I did see lots of people quipping on Twitter that. You know, this was an example of global Britain in action. That we we, we must be doing something about because PMQs is on CNN. I think um, it's got PMQs, PMQs has got yeah. quite an audience in Japan. Yeah, yeah. I think Japan. Uh, oh, like a, it's like, like a kind of slightly well, it's like a kind of Takeshi's Castle style weird oh, show. Exactly. Yeah. I think PMQs plays into a certain type of Americans image of what England is like. <laughs> yes. Just like ridiculous posh people shouting yeah, at John each other. Like, like, ornamental like Latin crap. Well, <laughs> but I, okay, so I'm, we'll, we'll take Rob Lowe out of the running, sadly. Um, I would say, Madeline, I would, if I was going to push back against the Trump thing, I would say maybe these days like nothing could shock me with Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does sort of favour the kind of shallow but big gesture. Yes. Uh, in that sense, I kind of was... Uh, yes, the, you're right, it was extremely striking, but I, was it kind of... It sort of just felt like that was how it was going to end in a funny kind of way. Yes. Um, yes, I, 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 do, I do take that point, but the fact is that prior to that meeting, they were busy firing rockets left, right and centre, and they've, they're not since doing that, and they're engaging more in the international community. Now, I'm not, I'm not a geopolitical expert, but that to me is a pretty momentous change that has been realised, albeit through you know, self-serving means the end result is still pretty important. Hmm. I think if you'd, in, on January the 1st this year, if you'd been like, Donald Trump is going to meet Kim Jong-un in a hotel in Singapore. No, if you wanted to, if, if you wanted to, be, like, what? If you wanted, like, to, be, uh, if you wanted uh, to be really shocked. And England are going to get to the semi-finals of the World Cup. If, I mean, you, if, if you, you looked at these in January, you would definitely have some question marks. No, if you but wa- the Germany one is definitely the weirdest. If you wanted to be really shocked, you should have told someone the Trump thing in like 2050. Then you yeah, would truly be <laughs> <laughs> You would also, truly be shocked. We, we, no, it's not just about the meeting that he had, uh, the, the, the shaky pants. It's about the, the weird stuff that came out in the aftermath as well. Do you remember when he said, I fell in love with him? Yes. And he sent me beautiful letters. You know, Kim Jong Un, the poet, Trump, I mean, Trump wherefore art thou, etc. Yeah. yeah, Trump's fawning over various I mean, I could, dictators yeah. is one of the most depressing things about him. Um, hmm. I'm in a long list. Yeah, his Putin meeting was pretty extraordinary as well. Yes, I, I believe him. <laughs> Seems like a great guy. Yeah, I, John, I'm, 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 I'm gonna, I'm not feeling the semi-finals one. I'm not I, what I, you were saying in the summer. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I would say either Ireland or, or Trump gets my vote. But um, I'm how do you vote have... for Trump? Okay, so we've got two for Trump. Okay, I'll 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 I'll, 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 I'll go for, I'll go for Trump as well. Sorry, no. sorry, Alan. Oh, thanks. So that means shock of the year is the remarkable sight of Donald Trump shaking hands with Kim Jong Un. Okay, so the final round is cameo of the year. Um, this. Um, is another going to be another hotly contested um, category, um, and why don't we kick things off with Alan, who refused to start last time, so he had to start this time. Uh, I'm going to go with. I mean, look, as we've all discussed so far, we spend too much time on Twitter, and when you're sort of travailing through some of the the, the bottom of the barrel of Twitter, 
you encounter some people who are, quite frankly, unbelievable. And so my cameo of the year is Craig Murray, who must be the conspiracy theorist's conspiracy theorist, who at some point in the admittedly very tragic Salisbury scandal decided to put forward the line that obviously the UK's line was nonsense and the most obvious explanation is that these... Uh, the most likely explanation is these were just gay Russian bodybuilders, these were just gay Russian uh, lovers who were probably a bit interested in the dodgy end of the bodybuilding industry. Like, most likely, most <laughs> likely, this is most likely... I, it was possibly. You explain who Craig Murray is for those fortunate enough not to have heard of him. <laughs> Craig, Murray, Craig Murray is uh, what used to be called in the Cold War a useful idiot, uh, in that he basically regurgitates the most ludicrous pro Russian RT Sputnik lines available. Not just the ones that are, that are slightly plausible, the absolutely ridiculous ones. Uh, for example, that these are obviously, most likely explanation. Um, just some 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 gay Russian bodybuilders also, didn't who you happen to have a, 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 a you know a real affinity for the for the for the town of Salisbury in Jan- in, in February or January wherever it was wasn't he um, also wasn't he also showing up sort of pick passport photos plus the CCTV of these look he was involved in all of this it was, a two, of... it was a two month I've, it was a two month uh, binge on just nonsense that you know he was he was putting forward he he was at the heart of all of it. Um, yeah, and and definitely don't look him up on Twitter because I mean, it's, it's insane. But uh, but yeah, that was my cameo of the year. Uh, my sort of my uh, my favourite Twitter um, idiot of the year, really. Well, that 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 leads us neatly onto my, um, my my nomination for cameo of the year. Who is a man called Steve Bray. Uh, you probably don't know the name Steve Bray, but you've almost certainly, if you well, firstly, if you work in Westminster, you know who he is. If you watch, if you watch the the news for more than five minutes in the last few weeks, you know who he is because he is the um, um, extremely loud "Stop Brexit" um, protester who marches uh, religiously, marches forwards and backwards um, behind the the um, behind the cameras on College Green and much to the annoyance of. Um, of, of, of all the hosts and all the uh, all the journalists trying to do their jobs there, I am no fan of Steve Bray, but um, he has been one of the sort of more unlikely figures to have just been sort of looming in the background yeah. like a good cameo um, throughout this year. Depressingly, I'm starting uh, to wonder if it might actually not be a political protest. It might actually be some kind of modern, modern art installation <laughs> or like a Hitchcock style, you know, artistic point that he's making. I doubt it, but. Well, so Steve Bray sort of—it was a sort of very lonely vigil for a long time, and now as we get closer to the Brexit kind of end game, it's, it's, he's now. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to push against this because, and this this will go to the approximately two uh, Labour conference attending listeners of this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> Steve Steve Bray is uh, but a child to the legend of of, of Labour Party conferences, oh, which is the no news yeah, guy yeah, yeah. Uh, with his bulldog. Who in 2012, I think it was, it might have been 13, uh, managed to uh, end up having a actual brawl with Ian Dale uh, and Damien McBride. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, on Brighton Pier. And the best bit of it all is the <laughs> so Ian Dale and and, and 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 this protester are sort of wrestling on the ground, but his long-suffering dog 
who's been carried from Labour conference for year to year, dressed as an anti-trident uh, <laughs> artefact, turns turns on his owner. He doesn't go for Ian Dale. He goes directly <laughs> for his owner. It's like, yes, this is my chance. So... For me, Steve Bray has many echelons. Maybe he needs a dog. We need a stop dog. He needs a dog. You need a stop Steve Bray dog. (laughs) Maybe don't keep that in there. Uh, Okay, so um, Madeline, your cameo of the year. Well, okay, so I picked picked two, um, but I have have a feeling that I may be clashing with somebody else. I'm just going to go for the the one that was was unique to me. Um, So we're going to hear from John about Jeffrey Cox the um, Attorney General who stole the show at the Conservative Party conference. Now, my pick is someone else who stole the show at the final hour, um, and that is Cher's performance in Mamma Mia 2. Um, now, I don't know who is listening to this podcast. I suspect maybe slightly blokier than Gurnier. Absolutely not. But if you got dragged to see it with a, with a partner or uh, mother, then you'll know that Cher turns up within the last 15 minutes and just completely kills it with three amazing songs. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's Cher, for God's sake. She dominates. So that's my cameo of the year. <laughs> okay. I mean, as someone who hasn't seen Mamma Mia 2, I find well, it hard to kind of... One? You know <laughs> who Cher is, right? I know, she dominates, who Cher is, she I mean. dominates everything. Or ABBA. <laughs> oh, I've heard of ABBA. It's a very ABBA year, so that's quite a... Um, well, exactly. And uh, John, your, your, your cameo of the year is... Mine was... Because I'd honestly forgotten he was even an MP... Uh, let alone in the cabinet. Let alone in the cabinet. Jeffrey Cox, who came on to do a kind of warm up for the PM, which is usually a fairly, for, you know, bit of a formality. And, and this is that concerned body conference. I'd never heard him speak before, which, given that I used to work for a website where I watched Parliament for like hours every day, really is saying something. And he comes out and he's kind of like the sort of love child of. Brian, blessed, and Winston Churchill. It's <laughs> extraordinary. But I think the best bit, I've actually brought the quote up, where he starts quoting Milton about uh, Brexit and says, Methinks I see in my mind a noble and puissant nation. And I think that's the moment when we kind of really knew that Britain had gone mad. <laughs> I was going to say, you've got uh, Brexit to I, I th- well, hey, Milton is still relevant. Yeah, I think that was... The faithful in the audience are probably lapping it up. Oh, but I just thought it was, like, kind of ludicrous. Like, <laughs> I mean, I guess if, 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 if... I mean, I think... It was a good performance, but, uh, like... You picked him, and you, 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 don't, you don't love him as we do. <laughs> yeah, Madden's okay, got deserves that she had to argue for Shannon. He deserves Cameron the other because no one had ever heard of him, and now people have. I mean, if anything, if anything, I think the... If anything, I think that... The argument is. against Jeffrey Cox as cameo of the year would actually be that sort of that he's a victim of, of his own success, and he's more than he's more than a cameo. And he, no, because he's that's, now you know that you, is the cameo of the year. But yeah, oh, you mean the exact that ten minutes? Yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Cox. But it, we, you know, the crazy the crazy the world we live in it includes you know is one in which people sort of vaguely toss his name up as a sort of caretaker prime minister in the near future. And yeah. I, mean, he's yeah. in, I think he is in contempt of parliament at the moment as well. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. on the legal He's advice. had quite a year. He's, yeah, he's had <laughs> quite a three months, um, quite an autumn. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but you're right, because even though as he 
he clearly made some strategic errors when it came to the publication of the legal advice on Brexit. He had to embarrassingly U-turn after a couple after two days, I think, and was held in contempt of Parliament. Um, despite that, he will always be the guy with the Aslan voice, won't he? So, mm. on the one hand, he's kind of beyond normal criticism, in much the same way that Jacob Rees-Mogg often manages to avoid it because of his kind of eccentricities. Um, and it also on the flip side means that people don't quite give him, you know, take him as seriously as perhaps they should. You know, it was announced today in the Times, I think, that he was, you know, he's militating against Theresa May and he's discussing, um, you know, we're going to wait until you know, early next year and then we'll depose her. So he's on manoeuvres, but no one cares because they're just talking about the Brian Blessed accent. But I think also, I think you're being, I mean, you did nominate him, but I think you're being a bit unfair on him in the sense that it wasn't a, ma- it was, it was very, it was a real change of, Tone from the average political speech, but I mean, it was, it was, it was great. It was authentic. It was, it was, you know, he, he, these sentences actually were, were so much better constructed and actually yes. meant something in a way that lots of political speeches, you know, don't. Oh, there's a pointless triangulation. I just stuff. meant the Milton thing. The, rest oh, of the, the, the Milton, right. the Milton yeah. uh, thing is. It's just it was a bit like, what's he doing? Well, and also, right. let's not forget the, the exact sequence of events is mystery, mystery um, person to warm up for the prime minister. The mystery person is Jeffrey Cox, the cabinet minister everyone forgot about. Turns out he has this great voice. Then he quotes Milton. Then, seconds later, Dancing Queen by ABBA comes on and Theresa May dances onto the stage. So it was a completely sort yeah. of balmy um, few minutes. Yeah. It was very sort of dead catty, if you think about it. Everyone forgot that she didn't mention Brexit. I think Jeffrey Cox really struck a chord with people. I agree with Olive in, in, a, in a more meaningful way than just they enjoyed hearing his voice, to be fair. I think he represents a quite a, a dying breed of politician, which was the kind of the lawyer politician. We don't have as many of those. And everything about him, I think, gives off a sense of security. He's kind of, seems distinguished. He's, he knows he knows his brief. He, he's got this kind of rotund charmingness about him. Um, <laughs> and all of this is, you don't actually get too much of it in politics these days. We've had years of ca- careerist type politicians who've been a spad, then become a politician. And it's quite nice to have a senior politician who's been on the bar for 36 years. It's reassuring. Okay, so a reassure a rock in these can turbulent I, times. Can I make Jeffrey a case Cox. then for my own my own nomination here? Because I think mine is the, the only one. Yeah, I think well, you need to uh, win mine one. and Mads are the only ones that are actually cameos. Well, I really Not hope Craig, I really <laughs> hope Craig Murray a cameo. <laughs> 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 Steve, if he comes back, Craig Murray is just a long sort of. <laughs> True, Ollie, that's a very good point. I mean, Steve, the cameo is meant to be just one scene. Yeah, not, like, not like the backdrop <laughs> to it in a movie versus the cameo in the movie. Uh, okay, so for that reason, I'll, well, I'll which case, surely that's an argument for, uh, for ruling at least Jeffrey, one victory. But surely that's the case for ruling Jeffrey Cox out. No, I rather suspect that Jeffrey Cox's story is not yet. We'll just put an actory conference after no, Jeffrey Cox. I think Jeffrey Cox is like it's one of those cameos where he was such a popular cameo in the first movie that there's like going to be a whole spin off series <laughs> yes. in which yeah. Jeffrey Cox yes. is the main character. <laughs> Um, Britney Spears in Ten Things I Hate About You. you know. Yeah. Okay. So I'm. Uh, so we're gonna call. Um, we're gonna. We're gonna call it. Uh, Jeffrey Cox wins cameo of the year. Um, from Capex, and um, this is the last Capex podcast of the year. Uh, have a great Christmas. Have a happy New Year. And we uh, to, to, to to play us out. Uh, we bring you uh, the dulcet tones of Jeffrey Cox. Methinks I see in my mind a noble and puissant nation, rousing herself like a strong man after sleep and shaking her invincible locks. (laughs) Methinks I see her as an eagle mewing her mighty youth 
and kindling her undazzled eyes at the full midday beam. Ladies and gentlemen, let us seize that prize. Thank you. Thank you.